Well, uh, on page four, the selection is printed for you, Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 8. Not going to reread it all right now. You might want to keep that open to page eight we'll, or page four. We'll go back to those verses from time to time. You've got a section over there for notes. I don't know if there's anything worthwhile writing down. There might be t- points where you say, what exactly was he saying? Make yourself a note and then call Tim. All right, that's what you do with that. That's what that section's for. It, it breaks up pretty easily into three specific points. It's a triad. Verses 4 and 5 are the underlying assumption, whether we recognize as such, believe such or not. Uh, God does, in fact, act. It's his world. We just get to live here. He does care. He will act in his time and in his own choosing. We're not even going to touch verses 4 and 5. That's the underlying assumption. We are going to touch 1 to 3. Isaiah is ranting and raving a little bit. We'll touch on verses 6 and 7. Here's a real issue. And verse 8 is good stuff. You're going to have to wait approximately 20 minutes for that. <laughs> Last January, I got to participate in something that really was a first in our little church body. You would think after nearly 175 years as a church body, we would have taught more of this sort of thing, but we simply haven't. Only in the last five to 10 years have we become enlightened in understanding that to do what you have done here at Carbon Valley over the last decade is a whole lot different than running a church that already exists. We've not taught much by way of how to start a new church, either to our lay people or to our pastors. So we've begun to do more of that. Last year in January, or actually earlier this year in January in Fredericksburg, Virginia, right between Richmond and D.C., halfway, a lot of Civil War action there. In Fredericksburg at a mission church run by a pastor who was one of Tim's vicars while Tim was in Toronto, we held the first Winterum for 12 seminary seniors. At the seminary, their academic year breaks up the same as most universities. September through December, first semester, January to May, second semester. But the first two weeks of January are set aside as something special called Winterim. Students are free to sign up for classes. Some of them go to Europe, study German or French or Latin for a while, do some research. Some of them take classes at the seminary. Some of them go on mission trips. And 12 seniors we got signed up and came out to Fredericksburg for the first ever church planting intensive taught to seminary students in a mission setting. It was wonderful. They said so, and we felt it too. And going into it, we were terrified. We were terrified, and it turned out pretty well, and we're going to do it again next month, right back in Fredericksburg with 12 more guys. There was time for some give and take on Friday, which was the last day of the formal sessions, and we just said, floor is open, ask anything about church planting or otherwise. I'm far and away the oldest of the three pastors that were teaching at this thing, question that one guy posed for me is, what's the hardest thing you've found in 40 years of being a pastor, as far as being a pastor? What's the hardest thing to deal with? Pretty good question. And I settled on one word, apathy. And I'm not talking about the apathy of the culture, the indifference that the culture has in large uh, with regarding to the scriptures and, and any form of absolute truth. Uh, I'm not talking about unchurched people necessarily. Uh, I'm not talking about the apathy that churched people will show on occasion. We all get a little apathy, don't we? We go hot and we go cold as far as church attendance and church participation and devotions and stuff like that. I was talking specifically about 
watching an apathetic person who grew up in the church or knows better, who simply walked away. Because in the 40 years that I've been a pastor, here's what's changed in our culture. It used to be that when somebody knew better and had been taught in this Christian faith and they walked away, they eventually came back. Statistically, since roughly the mid-80s, when somebody grows up in the church, learns about baby Jesus, about the risen Jesus, and knows how he or she should live as a Christian until they die, and then they walk away, they don't come back. They typically do not come back, be they 18, 28, or 48. And therefore, their kids never get a chance. And therefore, their grandkids now never get a chance. That's the thing that terrifies me the most and frustrates me the most in the last 40 years, to see somebody walk away and know there's a good chance they're never coming back. Forget about my Lutheran church. They may not come back to any church at all in their lifetime. <clears throat> Apathy or indifference is largely what Isaiah is talking about in this particular section of the Bible. A well-known Christian author has said, perhaps Isaiah, who lived 600 years before the time of Jesus, so we're now at the 2,700-year mark, right? Since he lived and wrote and worked, this author said, Isaiah may be the most applicable book for the U.S. culture, and particularly the U.S. church, to contemplate because he deals with indifference and apathy. He was not necessarily dealing at the start of his ministry with a government that was toppling. Relatively speaking, the Israeli government at that time was in pretty good shape in the middle of the wars, but they were in good shape in that little time frame. The economy, it wasn't bad. They were doing okay. What he did have to deal with, and his mandate from God, was to deal with the indifference and the apathy. Because this is 600 B.C., about 900 years earlier, God had cut a deal with Israel unlike anything that he had ever cut with any other nation then, up to then, or ever since. In exchange for obedience, Israel, in exchange for adherence to seeing things my way, in exchange for knowing the promise of the Messiah. You follow that, you live that, I'll give you blessings beyond the wildest dreams. I did that for one nation, the Lord says. And now that they are 900 years into that arrangement, well, the temple's still there, the sacrifices are still being thrown on the fire, people still kind of understand the drill, they're familiar, more or less, with the 630 commandments found in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and they kind of follow them. But is there a willingness? Is there a sincerity? No. And that's not Isaiah reading people's hearts, it's the Lord reading people's hearts, not just individually, but collectively. And so he sends Isaiah and other prophets and says, address the apathy. In a very real way, God, through these spokesmen that we call the prophets, be they the major prophets or the minor prophets, God is saying, I want a face-to-face -face encounter with this group of people. And we're going to narrow it and say, forget about the indifference of the culture as a whole. Forget about the indifference of people you may know who are not in church today. Look in a mirror as regards these verses and understand that God is quite the same in dealing with us as he was with Israel as a nation. 
he would like to encounter us, and he does encounter us. If not now, at some point, he will encounter us. And what's that going to look like, and what does it feel like? The first three verses that you got printed there is kind of like <clears throat> Isaiah's template for what God should do. That there should be an encounter in which God Almighty, who created the world and the universe and runs this place, comes down and just simply confronts Israel. Not the whole world right then, but you come down, Lord, and confront. And there is precedent for saying that and for praying that way. Look at his prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. <coughs> Isaiah's mandate is to encounter Israel. He pleads in a giant scheme, Lord, why don't you confront the whole world, starting with Israel? I'm supposed to speak here. I'm supposed to use words and consistency and get people to change their minds. Why don't you just come and do something significant with pyrotechnics and setting aside the laws of nature and something that is just absolutely shocking? It could be something good. It could be something damning. Just do something, Lord, and just shock them into believing. There is precedent. And that's why he says in verse 3, for when you did awesome things that we didn't expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. You guys know your Old Testament stories. Ten plagues of Egypt, ending with the death of the firstborn, both the critters and every household in the, among the Egyptians, called the Passover. God came down. A little while later, he's got Israel out in the desert. He's going to make an arrangement with them. We're going to meet at Mount Sinai. The world trembled. The mountain trembled. There was fire. There was storm. And he said, nobody gets to touch the mountain. Touch the mountain, you're dead. Think that got their attention? This is what Isaiah has in mind. Jump ahead in Israelite history. Mount Carmel. A little bit of a showdown. Crazy priests, they build their altar. Elijah builds his altar. Crazy guys crawl all day for the gods to come down and consume the sacrifice. They cut themselves, they bleed, they scream, nothing happens. Elijah says one little prayer, boom. Down comes fire, consumes not just the sacrifice, but even the stones. Later on, Israelites are in a fight for their life with the heathen nation, the Assyrians. God intervenes, 180,000 of them, that entire army, just dead. Israelites went out one day and said that army's not only, not all that significant more, there they sit, all 180,000 of them, Sennacherib's army, they're dead. This is somewhat what he has in mind when he prays like that in frustration. Lord, would you just do something? He's got the right to pray that way. When we do our prayers later on in this service, we, we cannot pray that way as the United States of America or as Brazil or England or, or whatever side of the fight you might be on in Ukraine or Russia or Palestine or the modern state of Israel. You can't pray that way because nothing by way of a nation or culture today has that arrangement that God made with Israel where he said, I give you blessings, you need something, just ask. You need a demonstration of my power, just ask. You need deliverance, just ask. Nobody's had that arrangement ever since. But 
That's what Isaiah prayed for, and God's answer to him was, no. No. I've had enough. Over 900 years, I've given them enough evidence in my power. I've confronted them enough times. This time, I'm going to send the Babylonians. Not only will your culture be wiped out, but your temple will be wiped out and you'll be carried into captivity. End of story. I think that we would kind of pray like this sometimes. If we, we, we wouldn't do that in a public way here if we're smart because it's the wrong way to pray in the New Testament. We're not God's chosen people. But, but I think individually we sometimes pray like that and say, God, just give me a sign, individual level or something at church or something in the culture that, that you're real and powerful and that you care. I, I think we lapse into that, don't we? Say, God, you owe us something like that? Could, could you just terrify us into faith? Could you terrify the world into faith? And, and the fact of the matter, any time that God has done something that is in fact powerful or supernatural, it typically did not bring, along, bring around long-lasting, genuine faith. If all the powerful acts had worked, this would have never been written. The Israelites would have been God's chosen people into infinity. But, but it didn't work. Jesus comes around and he did plenty of miracles, didn't he? Blind guy, here's your sight. Deaf guy, you can hear. Dead girl, rise up. I'm dead, I'll raise myself. Pretty significant miracles. He gave that ability to the apostles. Eutychus falls asleep, falls out the second story window, dies because the sermon went too long that night. You know, he was brought back to life for going to sleep during a sermon. Your grace, you're forgiven. Here's your life back. Right? So there were miracles. And if you look at U.S. history, there have been times where we have prayed, individually or collectively, in the midst of desperation. Church attendance spiked upward in the 1860s. We crowded into church and said, Lord, can you just bring this gosh-awful civil war to an end? And 30 years later... You think the 1930s depression was bad. It was nothing like the 1890s. Lord, can you bring this economic depression to an end? Leading up to our participation in World War I in 1917, churches were packed. Churches were packed in 1915 and 16 because we didn't want to get into the World War. God, could you just end this? World War II, in spite of hundreds of thousands of U.S. citizens being overseas fighting a two-front war, churches were packed. And churches were especially packed, all-time high percentage-wise as far as church attendance in this country, 1952 to 1955. Why? The war that nobody ever talks about, Korea. Because behind the scenes, this could be the big one. Because they got nuclear stuff and we got nuclear stuff. And people were terrified. And we prayed, Lord, would you intervene? And here's the truth. Whether ancient Israelite history the period during Jesus' lifetime, or what we've seen in our lifetimes. And we have seen something in our lifetime. If you're thinking it was just World War II, or Korea, or World War I, or the 1890s, we knuckleheads who were alive during 9-11, 2001, also ran to churches. You know how long we ran to churches after 9-11? Ask God for a sign, ask God to help us win a quick war in the Middle East. 
seven weeks. And then church attendance dropped off and it has never recovered. It continues to drop precipitously. Why? Miracles of God, intervention in human history, in and of themselves, never bring about saving faith. Isaiah was somewhat silly to pray that way. So where do you get saving faith from? It's what's in verses seven and six and seven. Same old message you hear every week. It comes from despair over sin. Recall what Jesus talks about in Luke 16. You can debate endlessly whether these were real life people or Jesus was just making up an account about two hypothetical people. But you know the story about the rich guy and Lazarus. You've heard that one? Most are going yes for the sake of those who don't remember. Here's the quickie summary of it. Rich guy sits there, we never get his name, lives in luxury his entire life, probably has a little bit of a palace, it's a gated community just like we got nowadays because Lazarus stays at the outside, at the gate, longing for some of what that rich guy had. Dogs lick his sores. He's that impoverished, he's just like a little relief. End of that part of the story, the rich guy dies, Lazarus dies. Lazarus goes to heaven because he had saving faith. Rich guy goes to hell. Not because he's rich, but because he did not trust in the Savior. Rich guy says to Abraham in heaven, Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain and says, there is the possibility of dialogue between hell and heaven. There is an awareness. And the rich guy says to Abraham, I'm stuck. I'm not getting out of here. I know that. But could you send somebody? to scare my brothers into faith so that they don't go to hell? That was his prayer. What was the answer? There's a great chasm fixed. I can't go from there to here, and you can't come from there to here either. As far as your relatives who are still there, they have Moses and the prophets, which is what you got in front of you. It's what Jesus was referencing. Isaiah is the clearest Old Testament book on both law and gospel. It's sometimes called the fifth gospel because of that. That, that the issue always has been sin and grace. Jesus himself said so. Here's a little bit more of an updated history lesson as to why that is true. If you go back into the 1500s and the 1600s, and I don't want to just talk about Martin Luther. He was one of a handful of reformers. He was a great one. But there were other ones, Melanchthon, John Calvin, John Wycliffe, who gave you the translation of the English New Testament. Uh, there were many reformers back then. What, what did they reform? The Christian church of 400 AD had become an institution that basically terrorized people and scared them into giving things so that the church could become a bigger institution. Eventually it morphed into what we call Roman Catholicism. Not picking on the Catholics today, but that's what it was in the 1500s. Until a handful of men dug into the book, which was very rare and hard to get your hands on, called the Bible and said, you know, the message is different than what the church has been promoting. And there is sin there, but there's also grace. Why did that resonate with people? Look at the conditions under which they operated. All they had ever learned with regard to their relationship to God was you need to be terrified because he's a damning God. If hell doesn't scare you, how about a dose of purgatory, which was an invention to further terrorize people into doing the right things, according to the institution. 
So there's absolute terror. There's absolute belief, almost to the level of sick superstition, in spirits being everywhere. You do find that in the New Testament. Ephesians 6 says our battle is with unseen spirits. They are a reality. But people in that era took it to the umpteenth degree and said around every corner, every little thing that happens in a mishap in a day, it's caused by an evil spirit. It's everywhere. And then there's life itself. Mortality rates, 100%. As far as how long you would live, average age, 51. If you got to be an adult, that was it. Average age of death. Mortality among children, one out of two died before the age of five. That was the world in which the reformers functioned. Think it didn't resonate when they came along and said, look what we found in Romans 3 and in other places. This thing called grace. And why do you need grace? Well, because the underlying issue and the overwhelming issue is not necessarily how good or bad the church is, how long you're going to live, or whether there's a demon hanging around the corner. The issue's always been a one-to-one -one thing. My sin, God's grace. This is what Isaiah had to say in that regard, verses 6 and 7. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are filthy rags. We shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Some of the harshest law in the entire Old Testament, in fact, the whole Bible. We shrivel up, and we deserve to be shriveled. In writing this the other day, and remembering where the church is located in all the years, I lived 39 years in the front range here, and I had a flashback. I did a wedding, and I, I'm going to point the wrong way, Tim. Yeah, it's that way, towards the hills. <laughs> I did a wedding over there about 20 years ago in an open area. A pretty well-attended wedding. Good sound system, nice day, lovely bride and groom. They're still married. It's all a good story. <clears throat> and because when I did weddings and I did a little sermonette and didn't just talk cutesy stuff about being married, there would be a little sin, a little grace in there too because that's the only way you're ever going to stay married. You're willing to repent, forgive. You understand, right? You know that, right? So that's in there. And people come up, and people will always come up after a wedding sermon and say, man, that was cool. Never heard stuff like that before. And they'd be talking about the sin and grace stuff. And at that wedding, a guy came up and he said, it's a good homily. And I thought, oh, golly. Don't use that word on me. It's good homily, and then he explained why he used the word homily, and I get it. He was a former Catholic priest. Good homily. And then there was the but. There's always a but, right? All right, what is it? You Lutherans, you Lutherans, all you ever talk about is justification. You're like a hamster on its wheel. That's what he said. You jump on that wheel every week, and you're just running on that wheel, you spend all week sinning, and then you run to church and get forgiven, and then you spend another week sinning, and you run to church being forgiven. And I thought, this is really ironic, a Catholic, ch Catholic <laughs> saying that to me. You, know? you got the same issue in the Catholic church, Bobby. But what he meant as trashing me, I took as a great compliment. 
If that's the analogy you want to use in describing the Lutheran perspective of what's what in the scripture, I'll take it. I'm just like a little hamster confined in a little piece of the world, and I jump there on an hourly and daily basis and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. I'll take that. Hamster I am. <laughs> because that's what Isaiah is saying, and that's what this whole scripture is about. It's about forgiveness, which leads you to the good news. Verse 8. What does it say? You, Lord, are our Father. We're the clay. You're the potter. We're all the work of your hand. Two weeks ago, I was out here in the front range. I got grandkids who live down in Littleton with their parents. We're working uh, some late fall season gardening in their massive backyard. I was pulling out some sunflower plants with my bare hands. They weren't big sunflower plants. Not all that impressive. I don't have big hands. Pulling out some big weeds with my bare hands. My four-year-old granddaughter is just looking at that and thinking like it was Goliath. <laughs> and then she had a few toys that were just kind of busted up from summer use, and it kind of clasped them back to bed together. Not a big deal. And we're sitting on the grass later on. She grabbed my hand. She's just looking at my hand like it was a miracle worker. Not a big deal. It really wasn't. But to her, that's a big hand. And there were some big things that came out of the ground, and, and yet that big hand could put little tiny things together that she couldn't get fixed. This is the analogy in front of you. Isaiah says, Lord, take your hands and do something with us. You've done that before, do something with us. And, and, and what is it that he's asking to be done? Would you mold us into something? Would you be like a potter with clay? Powerful enough to actually remove sin from us in the Lord Christ? Powerful enough and, and skilled enough to shape us into something useful? so that we behave like people who would do, in fact, follow the Christ. And how does that all come about? It's one little word in there. Did you see it? Third line from the bottom, he starts with the word, yet. It's always the little words in the Bible that are so significant. And the key word in this whole section is, yet. There's indifference, there's apathy, some of it's our fault, we got sin. You have the right to damn us, Lord, yet. What do you do? Yet is your reference to grace. In spite of what we are owed, you have taken your hand and pulled us off the heap of human sinfulness and brushed us off and presented us as people who are holy in the sight of God. That's grace. It's an undeserved gift. Day one of the Christmas season, the start of Advent, 21 days from now, right? Christmas Eve. It's all about grace. It's all about a gift. Go ahead and share some gifts. Go ahead and do the gift thing. Go through the routine of saying, make me a list and tell me what you want. And then I'll try and act surprised when I open the package and there it is. It's all about getting together with your family across the country and doing these family gift exchange things where you draw names online. You never see each other, but Amazon takes care of everything. You pick out seven or eight things you might want, and then a thousand miles away, my kid's acting surprised because they got what they said they wanted through Amazon. Not that kind of gift. The gift we talk about is something like maybe you got once in your lifetime where somebody who didn't just have your name, they simply knew you. And they knew what you needed, what you wanted, and what you like, and what would be of help to you. 
That's the kind of gift that we're talking about at Christmas. The mercy of the Lord. Rejoice in that this Advent season.